Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 140 for April 17th, 2008. Listener feedback 39. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now. The podcast that talks about online security, privacy, hard drives, ebooks, and occasionally coffee. Mr. <laughs> Actually, you're not as bad. Steve Gibson, ladies and gentlemen. You're, you're not as Who? bad as Paul Therott. Oh, is he major coffee? That's right. I have heard Paul talking about yeah, coffee. Yeah, Windows Weekly has become, in some respects, the coffee show. <laughs> but but do you have... Now, do you still... The last time uh, we talked about coffee was some time ago. You had installed the plumbed espresso machine, which all gaze on and wonder yeah i've switched back over to starbucks mode uh-huh. i get up now every morning at 4 40 a.m believe it or not what do you need and i'm i'm first person into starbucks that opens at five and uh i read an hour and a half with my kindle uh what's been going on uh you know for the last day so i do about an hour and a half about 90 minutes of of up news updating uh while i sip on my first quad americana quad and, only a quad yeah, because you know it's what just to the water. I, oh, it's just I, water. I, I do <laughs> quinty ventis or quinty venti lattes. Yeah, um, but yeah, and when I'm traveling, I'll do lattes. I don't know why, but that's sort of my habit. But normally, uh, just americanas, mostly because I don't want to be drinking all that milk. You know, uh, I don't, I don't need all that milk. And then, uh, and then I take my second one. Oh, and I prepay for two refills. So then to take, <laughs> I take my second one to go at about six thirty. I pull out and then start the day. And then um, about three hours later, that's gone. So I go back and it's just sort of nice to get out of the house and stretch my legs and yeah. you know, breathe, breathe yeah. some air and yeah. remember what the sun looks like. Right. And uh, so then I get my my third, my second refill, my third coffee, and that's my final one for the day. So and that's all we're going to talk about coffee. You, I'll turn it <laughs> right back over the to coffee Paul. show. <laughs> turn it back over to Paul. Wow. Yeah. But it's a good point. It is kind of nice when you work at home uh, all the time to have somewhere to go once in a while just to i i do the same thing for lunch i i, I could eat lunch in but i like to just to remember that there are still people outside yes. i mean there's you know there's still people wandering around and actually i had some lattes last week because i did a little bit of traveling um we haven't uh, mentioned this on the show but next week's podcast will be my coverage of last week's really really interesting rsa Conference 2008, as they called it, which is, of course, the industry's big, you know, the preeminent major security conference. Um, I was contacted by them and they said, hey, Steve, we noticed you're not registered. Um, How about if we give you full access to the conference and press credentials? And uh, I said, well, that'd be great. So uh, while you were in Australia taking pictures, I was in uh, San Francisco Looking at the street people and uh, <laughs> and oh. learning about security. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm not a city person. I well, like my suburbs. I'm thinking, uh, was it at Moscone RSA? 
It was at Moscone. Yeah. And I mean, there were some things, some memorable things. I met the guy who misspelled the referrer header. Oh, with one R. With one R. Remember, you and I talked about that yeah. once a long yeah. time ago. That must be crazy. And, and I think my my favorite little takeaway slogan, you know, we've all heard how you know people say information wants to be free. Yeah. You know, information wants to be free. Well, at RSA, they added, you know, another clause to that. Information wants to be free and code wants to be wrong. Yes. Isn't it true? I love that. Code, code wants to be wrong. That's, it, that's be wrong. every bit as true as information wanting to be free. And of course, this whole show is about code's success in being wrong. Well, we should we should uh, we should we should rename the show to when code attacks. <laughs> yes, but when doesn't it? Yeah. As a matter of fact, that that's a perfect segue into um uh my first uh rata, but I've got a bunch. Well, go ahead. Okay. Go to it and I'll do I'll do, we'll save the audible for a little later. Okay. Um uh we had a big black Tuesday the Microsoft second Tuesday of April, where we there were eight security updates, every one of them critical. Wow. And the, probably the most notable, and I should say that there's many, there's a much proof of concept code that's been released, and there is exploit code in the wild. The, the most significant one is our old friend, the Windows Metafile. And uh, I did a little research looking back, and pretty much every year, um, remember, of course, the classic Windows Metafile was the one that w you and I, mostly me, uh, made so controversial back at the beginning of 06, a little over two years ago, where it was clear to me, looking at the nature of what was wrong, that this was just something that had been left behind, but was originally put in on purpose. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, then... A year later, there around this time in 07, there was another major metafile problem, and here we are in 08 with um, a, a serious one. This affects both 32-bit and 64-bit OSs. Windows 2000 Service Pack 4, all supported releases of XP, Server 2003, all versions of Vista, and server 2008. I mean, it's just, wow. it's, it's every OS that Microsoft has. And quoting from their Microsoft's own details, they, they said, a remote code execution vulnerability exists in the way that GDI, which is the graphics device interface, handles integer calculations. So there's an integer vulnerability of some sort. It says the vulnerability could allow remote code execution if a user opens a specially crafted EMF or WMF, that's Enhanced Metafile or Windows Metafile, image. An attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could take complete control of an affected system. An well, it would be affected then. An attacker could then install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts. And then they say in a separate section, in a web-based attack scenario, an attacker could host a website that contains a web page that is used to exploit this vulnerability. Mm. In addition, compromised websites and websites that accept or host user-provided content or advertisements could contain specially crafted content that could exploit this vulnerability. In all cases, however, an attacker would have no way to force users to visit these websites. Yeah, okay, big deal. Instead, an attacker would have to persuade users to visit 
the website, typically by getting them to click a link in an email message or instant instant messenger message that takes users to the attacker's website. So, you know, this is the this is the new model of exploit that we're seeing are these web-based attacks that take advantage of the inherent vulnerability of web browsers, which is inherent just because first of all they're so complex and of course scripting is a is a big problem. This isn't in this case a scripting oriented problem. This is a a problem that actually there's a it's a heap overflow vulnerability in EMF and WMF files. And then there's another different stack overflow in enhanced metafiles. So it's just like, oh, goodness. Um, basically, it means anything that can cause Windows to display a picture. And I mean, that's, you know, opening your email with, with preview mode active or or doing anything that shows one of these specially crafted images. So, and, and you notice that Microsoft is now they've they've enhanced their jargon here to talk about you know or advertisements because we have seen instances where ad content, ad imagery was not su- su- um, sufficiently vetted, or you know there's in some cases there's no vetting at all where an ad server was hosting infected advertising images um you know w- without intending to of course on you know a, a huge number of sites i'll have it on so, myspace so, it was a terrible thing yeah, yeah so anyway so okay so if for some reason it is not possible for people to patch you there is a registry tweak that can be put in to just disable metafile processing that's probably not a big deal because, frankly, you know, metafiles are there. They've been there from the beginning of Windows. Um, they're, but, but they're not typical images in email or web pages. You know, as we know, web pages are JPEGs, GIFs, and PNG files typically. So you could, you could successfully disable Windows metafiles, and, you know, maybe that's what the corporate guys are going to do. Use a script to push out a change to disable metafile processing. Because they don't really uh, like to uh, update all the time. Well, exactly. I mean, we've seen cases where updates cause more problems than right. they cure. I mean, an update causes an absolute problem, whereas the vulnerability is a potential problem. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that, you know, our listeners are, you know, are are staying on top of this. You know, this was the standard Windows patch. All of my Windows machines were, you know, were showing a list of these problems that, that you know, needed to be fixed. Um, actually, when I got back from San Francisco, they were all waiting for me. So. Yeah. Anyway, it was uh, it's just, you know, another typical, you know, Black Tuesday. This one, you know, well, you know what? I guess we've had a couple non-event Patch Tuesdays um, this year so far, but this is a big one. So I just wanted to give our listeners a heads up and say, you know, don't miss this one. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I tell you, I'm surprised that that's still happening with the Windows Meta file. Aren't well, and, a, and across all the OSs, yeah. Leo, which says, you know, they're they're sharing code. Maybe this is like 32-bit code that runs in a 64-bit context and under the 64-bit OSs, or it's just, you know, it was it was a problem that existed even in 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 source that survived compilation into a 64-bit, you know, target environment. I mean, it's amazing to me, but. You know, it's like, whoops. I mean, this stuff is really complex. And as we know, our new slogan is code wants to be wrong. (laughs) Apparently. Apparently (laughs) it does. Apparently it does. 
Um, I noticed when I was doing a little browsing around, I thought I would mention a little preemptively, or maybe it won't be by the time this is heard in two days. Um, we're about to cross the four million perfect passwords delivered wow. on GRC's perfect passwords page. That's really amazing. It's about 3,600 a day are being generated. That's actually, that's actually sets of passwords. So there's actually more than that many. It's, I think it's what now, I think three, three different variations I, twice. I thought your page was more a demo of the fact that it could be done, not a place to get. Oh, no, no. People use it as a source of entropy. They oh. go there, you know, I mean, you know, and, and of course we've, we've read, you know, our, our, in, in our Q and a, Hey Steve, I'm using one of your perfect passwords to protect my, uh, my wifi. I don't, I don't, I don't blame you for not being able to type those in. And they, then they give us their tips for how they manage to type them in. Oh, you're not so, talking about the perfect paper passwords. You're talking about the passwords page. Correct. That's exact. my confusion. When you put perfect in there, now I'm confused. <laughs> Okay. Right. It's not saying. the perfect paper passwords. And you're, you're right. About that's the 60, just a demo. The, the 64 uh, byte uh, crazy web key or yeah. WPA key. Yeah. 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 All kind. Of, I mean, I use them myself for yeah. whenever, whenever I just need something. It's just like, oh, I'll just go get one there because right. it's, it's safe and guaranteed Boy, to be no unique. Wonder. Blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of passwords. Four million. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I just Did wanted to see, get a little. By the way, the entropy problem that was it the Maryland State Lottery was having? No, interesting. They were using a random number generator. Let me make sure that this is correct. Ooh, but it was a bad random it number was. generator. And uh, 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 they um, got a, uh, it was one of those power, the short ones, like the numbers game. They, and they got 7077 7707 <laughs> <laughs> It was kind of a problem. Kind of a little bit of a problem. I have to well, ter- I, let me not let me not not to libel the Maryland State Lottery. I'll try to find out which lottery it was, but there was a state lottery random number generator that didn't work so well. I did want to give our listeners a little bit of heads up on my early experience with my monster quad core workstation. I wanted to say that it's a that quad core seems to be a total waste as a oh, really? personal as a personal workstation if you're going to if you're unless you would be using that machine for media compression it is just a killer solution for yeah. media compression oh my god leo is it fast yeah. it's just unbelievably good i mean it well because you're it, using a tool whatever it is that you're using to do the compression that is multi-threaded well it's and it's yes it's multi-threaded and it's multi-core i mean it recognizes what you've got and it really uses it but you and won't see any benefit and that's the real issue is i think a lot of programs aren't multi-core aware they're not smp aware so you won't see any benefit well and and that's just it is you know i'm i'm looking at this thinking and i wanted to give our listeners a heads up my my feeling is if i knew now what i knew if i if i knew then what i know now i would have gone with a a state of the art top of the line single core you know um uh maybe dual but go for the 3 point something gig rather than slowing down in order to get four cores because i rarely see more than one ever in use right. it just doesn't happen in a personal workstation environment well just- I, having had much experience with this it, I, I could tell you it really depends on the uh how you use your computer if you don't have many it works very well if you have multiple programs running simultaneously and your OS is smart. You're using Windows. Um, if the OS is smart enough, it will it will divide those tasks up. So I have many, you know, I, have, I use a quad core processor, also dual Xeons. 
Yep. And uh, I I run a um, CPU, as I'm sure you are, a, a, a CPU monitor. So I yep. see when the cores are used. And you're right. If you're just, you know, if, if you're using one or two programs at a time and they're not multi-threaded, you're not going to see much benefit. But if you're using a multi-threaded program or you're using your OS is smart enough to divide tasks among separate programs, then you'll see a benefit. Well, but I guess, you know, I mean... Most Windows programs, and I'm sure Mac is the same way, I mean, they sit there in their idle loop waiting for input. Right. And so I guess, you know, in my own personal use, I'm reading email, I'm writing right. code, right. I'm in an editor, I'm looking, I'm browsing the web. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, there's nothing I'm doing where programs are like really busy all the time doing things behind the scenes. The only thing I can really think of would be, you know, Image compression. I mean, would be big media file compression, and there you just sort of want to go away and not try to use your system at the same time. Right. I have a few programs that will use all four processors uh, pretty heavily. Wow. Yeah. So it it really it does. It's totally dependent on your usage. But occasionally, uh, I will I will peg them. Right now, they're not. They're all sitting there. I got Skype running. I got a browser running. I got email running. Nothing's happening. Two percent all across the board. Well, I did have a, a nice little note from Matt Ludlam in Weybridge, London, who made a comment um, from our prior Q&A where there was a – we mentioned a Firefox add-in, which if you hover, it allowed you to hover over the submit buttons of forms – and it would pop up a little window showing you the URL. Oh, that's right. And he mentioned something that I had not noticed before, and that is that IE7 – has that functionality built in. Oh. I went I went back and looked at IE6. I've now got VMware installed on this on this workstation so I've got, you know, I can run multiple versions of Windows each with their own version of IE. There by the and, way would be a good multi-core use. Yes, and actually it is. I, I did notice that when when those were doing something, VMware was good about borrowing some right. more of the system resources. Of course, there, what I really wish is that I could put more than 4 gigs in a 32-bit yes. machine. Yes. Because Boy, it, you know, RAM is so cheap now, it'd be, and and VM, as we know, virtual machines just burn memory because they all like to have their own. Right. Anyway, um, Matt's point was very well taken. IE seven, you're able to hover over um, submit buttons and down where it normally shows you the link text when you're no- hovering over normal links. It also now does it for submit buttons, which cool. I thought was very nice. Yeah, so you're able to check the security state before you click, and and then finally. Elaine, our illustrious transcriber, she sent me a a note shortly after uh, that last round of many podcasts you and I recorded before you you were taken off to Australia. And she said, so I, I, I have a little note here that I left to myself so I wouldn't forget to mention it. I said, Elaine reports, quote, the Carlsbad Caverns are in New Mexico. Yeah. She said, well, and I was saying that I was thinking they were in Carlsbad, California, and we no, said something no, to that no. effect a couple of podcasts ago. <laughs> I wasn't she, listening or I would have mentioned that. So, so she said, she said, Carlsbad, California is the home of the expensive spas, not creepy bats. Right. And, and she said, I have a feeling you may hear from some of your more of some of your less geographically challenged listeners on this. <laughs> and I wrote back and said, yeah, I don't get out much. So <laughs> Too many people. <laughs> yes. Wrong Carlsbad. Carlsbad. Folks. New Mexico. What did you say? New Mexico. Uh, Carlsbad, New Mexico. Yeah, I've never been there. You know, we went in caverns. Uh, went in a cavern, the Maracupa Caves in uh, in Tasmania, that were quite awesome. I have a few pictures of that. Quite amazing. Cool. Caves are fun. 
Thoughts to the Batcave, Robin. Actually, before we do that, we do have listener feedback. This is episode 39 of our listener feedback. And episode 140. Uh, I was wondering when you'd mention now. that. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah, baby. You passed twit. Yeah, passed twit, and we got 10 to go to we're at the magic 150, Good. which is a nice round number. Yeah. So um, we will answer your questions just a bit, but first I want to mention uh, Audible.com. They're our great sponsor. Audible is the folk, are the folks, is our, is the company, are the folks who give you the great audio books that we love so much that saved me on my 14-hour plane ride to and fro. Uh, Audible is just a great source of, uh, of reading, of learning, of entertainment. Audible.com is the place. Now, we have a special page, audiblepodcast.com slash security now that you can go if you haven't yet signed up for audible i i, I tell you I, we had a couple of meetups in sydney and in uh, hobart tasmania and uh most of the people in both even though they're australians had signed up for audible.com it is really popular all around the world but if you're one of the few who listens to the show and isn't yet a member go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now and you can get a when you sign up a credit for a free book and we like to make recommendations i know i know that uh Steve's a, a, a science fiction fan, so I picked a good science fiction book that actually I've read the first uh, episode of in paper, but I'm so pleased. They just added these audio versions. Have you ever read any David Brin science fiction? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's one of my favorite authors. Isn't Absolutely. Did you read yes. the Uplift saga? So uh, no. It's, oh, it's a trilogy. Uh, really, um, I think, a great story. He is a He's another one of those hard science science fiction Exactly. Guys. He writes really good hard sci-fi. And he's very smart, obviously, and really knows his stuff. So um, his his books, uh, boy, they're, they're really for people who uh, love science fiction but want it to be, you know, not fantasy, but, but sci- based on science fact. The Uplift trilogy is really, really good. You're going to like it a lot. The Uplift Saga. Sundiver is the first one. They have all three. They just added them. Um, I'll read you the little synopsis here because I, I, it's it's like uh, our our friend Peter Hamilton. They're such rich universes; it's hard to de- synopsize these stories. Um, it's an intriguing exploration of humanity's future in the universe. For a, nearly a billion years, every known sentient species in the universe has been the result of genetic and cultural quote guidance sometimes called uplifting by a previously uplifted patron race. Interesting. Then humans are discovered. Having already uplifted chimps and dolphins, humanity clearly qualifies as an intelligent species. But did they actually evolve their own intelligence or did some mysterious patron race begin the process then suddenly abandon Earth? The answer to this mystery might be as close as our sun. It's really, Sundiver is good. I've already read this. Uh, I can't wait to read the other two, but now I can listen to them at audible.com. They've got all three highly recommended. These were just published. Um, when I first joined Audible eight years ago, they're 10 years old, eight years ago, they didn't have a lot of sci-fi and they've made a concerted effort to add the best science fiction. I'm so glad they've started to add David Brin's books. He is one of my favorites. So a good recommendation, Sundiver, the Uplift Saga. Um, it, it's just, oh, it starts with... Uh, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> no, okay, now, now, wait a minute. When you say that you've read it, it strikes me as that's really uh, the wrong word. I read right? that one on paper. Oh, you did I read did. it. Okay, yeah. so you actually read with your Before eyes, it was not, available not from read Audible. with your ears. Yeah, and I loved it, and I was about to get the other two to when I saw these were available. Uh, but I call it read, you know, and I get email from time to time, people saying, ah, you didn't read it, you listened to it. <laughs> it's just like right. reading. It's every word is there. I'm not sure exactly what the difference is, except I didn't use my eyes, I used my ears. 
But uh, so I, I say read. I mean, when you've read a book, you've read a book. It means you've consumed it. No, no, no. Sorry you think it should be listened? I think it should be listened to. I, I listened to that book. I mean, that's entirely acceptable. Well, there's nothing wrong with it, I guess. <laughs> but I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you read it either. Except that you didn't. Wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> now, what is it? So, okay, you're being very literal. No, I mean, yeah, reading is a process. Of, you're being very literal, but it's but, the con- but I've consumed the same exact content, have I not? Indeed you did, but you didn't do it by reading it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, if that's what you think. Speaking of reading. Yes. Um, but let me have... just finish this up. Audible. Oh, oh. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And, uh, and you can listen to Sundiver, The Uplift Saga, or any of the three Uplift books. I would get all three if I were you. Uh, but you get a credit towards the first one anyway. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You could say read. You could say listen. I don't well, care what you call it. You, you, and you could read along while you were listening. Yeah, if I you suppose wanted. if you. Yeah, I guess you could even do that. They <laughs> call them listens. I mean, I admit they say listen on Audible, but uh, I call it reading. And okay. and you're you're not alone. There are quite a few literal minded concrete folks. I guess engineers would be concrete when you program in a semi language. Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> being being literal is very important. It's reading, not listening. Because code wants to be wrong. Reading. All right. <laughs> Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Yes, you said what? Oh, I, I said, uh, well, I have a, an interesting note that I, I wanted to share because yeah. it's, uh, it sort of describes an interesting journey that somebody had with TrueCrypt and Macs and PCs and SpinWrite. Ah. This is Jonathan Schmidt who uh, from Ohio who writes, he said, SpinWrite saved my Vista Mac. And he said, hi, Steve, I've listened to you on security now since the beginning, and I really appreciate all you do for the Internet community. You too, Leo. In fact, because I love your podcast and the others at the Twit Network, I signed up for the automatic PayPal payments and send $5 a month. I know it's not much. Well, I I think that's pretty good. No, it's more than I even ask. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I know it's not much, but I hope it helps. Um, It it certainly does. Yeah. In support of you and your efforts, I also purchased a copy of SpinWrite, which is the reason for this email. In the recent episodes of Security Now concerning whole drive encryption, I got the itch to try it out. I downloaded the latest version of TrueCrypt 5.1a to try on my MacBook Pro running Vista via Bootcamp. So that's the dual boot mode. Right, right. Um, he says, incidentally, 5.1a's bootloader now supports Intel Max. Hmm. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. He says, I first ran into a problem when trying to encrypt my Vista partition. Apparently, TrueCrypt doesn't like the partition table set up by OSX and Bootcamp. It said that there was not enough room available on the drive to install itself. So I did some digging and found out that you can actually install Vista directly on a Mac without OSX. All you have to do is boot from the Vista install disk and remove all partitions, and then install Vista just like any other Intel machine, no hacking required. Right. I proceeded to go through the Vista install just like any other Intel-based machine. The only, there's After, only one problem, which is you don't have the OS X drivers, but we'll address that. Ah, right. He says, I proceed to go through the Vista install just like any other Intel-based machine. After the clean install, I ran TrueCrypt 5.1a and started the whole drive encryption with three-pass wipe to be safe. Wow. Uh, And he says, voila, everything started working. TrueCrypt began encrypting the whole drive. 
Unfortunately, when it got to about 78% of the way through, TrueCrypt gave me a CRC error, indicating that it was that it was a problem with my drive. Although I tried several times to continue, TrueCrypt gave me the error every time. I thought, crap, I went through all this work only to have a drive error. Now what do I do? Then I thought of Spinrite. Of course, Spinrite doesn't run on a Mac. <clears throat> hint, hint. Close parens. He says, so I pulled out the drive and stuck it in my regular Intel desktop. I ran my copy of Spinrite overnight at level four. Sure enough, this morning when I came down, Spinrite reported that it found and fixed an unrecoverable error. I popped the drive back into my MacBook Pro. I powered it up, and TrueCrypt prompted me to pick up where it left off. I did so, and did not, and it did not give me an error this time. It is continuing to encrypt the rest of the drive as I type. Pretty amazing. Spinrite saved my Vista Mac. I always knew that Spinrite would come in handy someday. Thanks so much, and keep up the great work at GRC and Security Now. Sincerely, Jonathan Schmidt. Excellent. And um, let's see, there was one thing I noted. Oh, when he said that that TrueCrypt didn't like something about the partition, I'll bet I know what that is. I'll bet that when the Mac was repartitioning the drive and set up a boot sector on the Vista partition, I'll bet that it didn't zero out the rest of the track. And that when TrueCrypt, being as careful as it is, looked at that first track of the Vista partition, it's, it saw debris there, whatever happened to be there before. Right. But it just assumed that it was, you know, something horrible like Macromedia, you know, junk. Or, you know, it saw that the, apparently... The, co- the uh, copy protection that Macromedia uses, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it probably Adobe, saw say, yeah. that there was something there. Normally, that track is all zeros. And so, you know, I'm sure that the TrueCrypt guys take a look at that and make sure that it's zeros before they install themselves. And they probably saw that it wasn't and said, ooh, you know, whatever's there, we don't want to hurt it. And, you know, we can't go in here. So that may very well have been, um, you know, what caused the problem for him. Yeah, it's very careful about these things, which as it, as it should be. Yep. And uh, and it sounds like he was he he was installing instead of running Mac at all. He was installing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I misunderstood him. But you I think he wiped he wiped Mac OS right. X off the machine completely. You you do want to use Boot Camp, and the main reason that this procedure I wouldn't recommend this procedure is that one of the things Boot Camp does is make a CD with Vista drivers. Uh, for the Macintosh hardware. Otherwise, you don't have drivers, specific drivers for the hardware. So do at least do that. Create that CD. Then you can wipe oh, it. Right, and then you use that to install the Mac drivers for the hardware. Right. So what, well, what, what normally happens with Boot Camp is it does the partitioning, install, then you install Windows, and but it, at, before it does that, it makes a CD of drivers. After you install Windows, you put the CD and you install the Mac hardware-specific drivers. So yep. uh, if, you don't, if you don't use Boot Camp at all, you won't get that disk. I guess is what I'm saying. But you don't yep. have to uh, use Boot Camp. Of course not. You can. I don't know why you'd buy a Mac to run Vista only, but <laughs> you can if, if that's what you choose. Shall we get to the uh, questions? We have a lot uh, of them. Yep. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's let's read those uh, questions. What did I do with them? I put them away. <laughs> that's your announcer voice. Let's go to the questions. As soon as Leo finds the questions. I have about 80 windows open at the same time here. You know, I think I put them away. 
Why did no I wonder you have quad core. <laughs> you see, now now you know why I need it. I actually, I, I sort of shut things down and keep the system from getting. Well, too I busy. do. I don't. I, what I really don't want it to be doing is running um, uh, internet processes. There it is. But I do have other processes running because uh, that's one of the reasons you you might want quad cores for the headroom. I guess that's what I would say. Is it's it's all about headroom, so that when you need additional core, like I'm, I'm seeing right now, as I look at my graph, there, there were there have been a few spikes during this. But I don't have to worry because I know that Skype running in its own process there and its own processor is not going to run out of juice. Right. So it's it about headroom. All, yep. Yep. For me, anyway. And you're right. And I have several quad-core machines. And it may be that Windows doesn't do as good a job of uh, dividing tasks up. I don't know. Yeah. I just, again, I'm, I'm, I'm happy saying to our listeners, eh, you know, maybe just go with a fast dual-core or a, a, a single-core hyper-threaded processor and go for more speed um i think for typical users unless you're you're into media compression or like you know having literally having things really doing number crunching at the same time eh, i i think it was a waste of money really yeah well you see the interesting thing is that basically you're not getting a choice these days because intel has decided that everything's going to be at least dual core right and, and in which case you know, you've got multiple cores and that's a good thing. But, you know, f- for me, given, you know, what I understand now, I don't think I'd do it again. I think I'm I'm seeing these are underutilized and I'd rather have more speed and fewer right, cores. Right. Well, I don't even know if you get that choice anymore, but. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Message to Intel. You might want to look at an AMD chip. Chris Clark from Western Australia's Perth. I didn't make it to Perth. Apparently nobody makes it to Perth because it's in Western Australia, far away from the rest of the uh, continent, or whatever you call that. It's not a continent. It's a big island. Let's his fingers do the walking. Hi, Steve and Leo. I've been wondering what you'd think of a technique I've used for a long time to create passwords that are easy to use despite their apparent complexity. He says he uses muscle memory. I create a simple geometric pattern that moves my fingers around the keyboard in a way that makes the output look like complete gibberish. The pattern is simple. The resulting password is not. Basic example, start at the bottom leftmost key of a U.S. QWERTY keyboard. Hit the first four keys. The bottom key, leftmost key, so that would be ZXCV. Move up a row and so on. That would be ASDF, then QUER. And then he adds 1, 2, 3, 4. After a little practice, the keystrokes become second nature. can be tapped out in a second or two. That's true. That would be easy even though that's a nice long password. As an added bonus, since you're memorizing the pattern, not the text, your eyes and brain never really learn the password. <laughs> I don't know why that's a bonus. Only your fingers know the secret. <laughs> Obviously, my own finger dance is a lot crazier. Oh, good, because I was going to say that one is the, probably one of the first things a hacker would guess. It's a lot crazier than the example I gave just now, but you can see even uh, see how even the simplest example can produce a longish password that looks pretty random. Maybe looks is the operative word there. Even if, strictly speaking, it's not random at all, would a password like this stand up to a sophisticated brute force attack? Well, it was an interesting question. My my concern is that it sort of sounds like this methodology results in using a single password a lot. And we know that, you know, it's generally a bad idea to use one password as like, you know, your password and reuse it wherever you go. We understand it's you know much more secure to somehow have a, a, a system that generates different passwords for different uses. So 
you know, I mean, I, I, I wanted to throw the question in because there's some interesting ideas here. For example, if you had an algorithm that was more sophisticated, for example, like the first letter of the website is your starting key on the keyboard – and then you do something, you know, you go up if you can, otherwise you go down, um, you go right if you can, otherwise you go left. I mean, you know, you, you could imagine an algorithm where starting at any given location on the keyboard, you could do something consistent that would generate a password, which is, you know, very unlikely to be found in any kind of a brute force. I mean, first of all, when he talks about a sophisticated brute force attack, you know, you'd first be exhausting your dictionary and then combinations of words. You know, it's very unlikely that, that an attacker would start attacking the 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 physical location of keys on a keyboard. And frankly, there's so many possible algorithms. You know, I mean, you the, of course, in, in, in a typical keyboard, you've also got diagonals, not just up and down. You've got up, left, up, right, down, left, down, right. Um, I mean, I could see coming up with an algorithm that could get could give it any starting place could consistently generate an interesting password. So there's you know there there's something to it. I'd be careful about some of the more obvious combinations, though. I think it probably uh, brute force attacks include thing. It looks for things like ASDF and go oh huh, keyboard. Well, yeah, and and doing QWERTY, you know, Q W E R T Y. Yeah. You want to stay away from that one yeah. because you know, that's probably in the dictionary. One. It wouldn't right. be so difficult, frankly, to write. A, uh, par- a brute force attacker that includes some of the more obvious uh, keyboard algorithms. I'd be careful Ab- about that. Yep, absolutely right. Someone who asked us not to use his name from Tennessee wrote, he strongly disagrees with advice about old operating systems. Steve, I usually agree with what you have to say, but I thought your advice about old operating systems on episode 136 was way off base. In many cases, the vulnerabilities that are found in newer operating systems exist in the old ones. Not always, of course. For example, wasn't the animated cursor exploit one that went way back? And some of the most recent networking holes went way back into old operating systems. Well, we just talked about WMF, which goes way back. But not that far. Not that far. And some of the most recent network... Oh, yeah. I'm aware of at least one incident involving an employer in my area where systems were compromised and information stolen. The hack involved older operating systems past end of life that were on a network. Employees received malware and an email that infected their systems... The malware then went through a series of known exploits for unpatched and past end-of-life operating systems. I'd argue that the only safe ways to run a system with an OS past end-of-life is A, to ensure it's never connected to an internet-connected computer, air-gapped. That's a good way. I like that. Air-gapped. Or that it is behind a well-configured external firewall that only permits absolutely necessary and well-monitored traffic through the outdated system. That makes sense. I'd agree with them. Yeah, and I have to. I mean, I, I... I still like the idea of using, you know, 9X era machines, you know, 98 second edition um, for their their relative invulnerability. They, they have, for example, none of the exploits in today's or this month's Patch Tuesday affects those older machines, for example. Well, well you wouldn't because, expect new patches for the older machines. They don't even patch them anymore. No, no, no. But, but I mean, none of the vulnerabilities exist in the old in in none of this month's vulnerabilities affect 9x class os's we know that for a fact yeah or that just that they didn't patch them no 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 it's that they're not vulnerable vulnerable back there oh, okay 
to, the, to that specific one, just like the Windows Metafile. I guess know, his point two, is that ago. you can't always say that they don't, they may not patch them. It doesn't mean that they're not, not vulnerable. That's very true. And, and so that's I, the problem is that they don't patch them. Yep, it's past end of life. And so I just, I, I thought his opinion deserved being aired. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on his side. I don't see it's no use <laughs> Windows 9X. Uh, you're just right. I, mean, I think he's right. If you're going to, if it's going to be in any way connected to a networked machine, you're, you're vulnerable. Even if it's not on the net itself. Right. I mean, you, you would agree with that, right? I mean, there, certainly there are, I mean, he's, he's cited a case where there are exploits that look for, particularly for older machines. Yeah. I think a lot, I'm, I'm willing to bet that a lot of reason things like Sasser, is still on the net is because there's a bunch of dusty old Windows 95 or 98 machines running in closets at at, 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 insta- at, at, at enterprises that don't bother to look at them ever because they still work. They do what they were supposed to do. And so they don't patch them and they don't fix them. And they don't keep an eye on them. And they're out there chugging out viruses all the time. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's why Sasser's still around. Eric, listening from Sanford, North Carolina, wants greater security and less service. Oh. Stephen Leo, first, thank you for providing an invaluable service. Computer users everywhere. I'm an avid listener who never misses an episode. And thanks for making me look smarter to my friends and family while helping them with their computer problems. Secondly, you and your feedback listeners have mentioned turning off unnecessary services and processes in Windows 2000 and XP. Could you do an episode or a feedback question detailing how to slim down Windows and slam some vulnerability doors shut? My identity, my processor, and my limited RAM thank you in advance. I do what you rec- recommend. I keep up to date with Microsoft OS patches. Use the Komodo firewall. Run spyware and antivirus weekly. Use a NAT router at home. I do my best not to contract a CTD. I like that. Computer transmitted disease by traveling to only a few favorite sites. Wow, this poor guy. But I do take a Sunday drive on the net occasionally. Good. Third-party ad banners are a cause for concern for one. Thanks. And that's just what we talked about with this WMF vulnerability. Yeah, um, I, I I wanted to respond to a couple of th- points that Eric made. First of all, um, I do think that's a great subject for a show topic, and I've Turning got off it on my services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, essentially, doing the research to to see specifically which things can clearly and safely be turned off. I mean, I know, you know, we we were talking about the Black Viper site. Um, which gives a lot of advice. Just the other day, in fact, it was when I was setting up some of these machines in a VMware environment. I noticed that in XP, you know, the, the wireless zero config service is there and running. Yeah, and it just bugs me because I mean, this is a workstation with no Wi-Fi, and and you know, Windows could know that I don't have any wireless you, adapter. You mean it actually this. starts up even though there's no wireless adapter? Yes, it's there and running just like, oh, you know, That's we're going to give you zero, you know, zero config. Well, zero config is right. Yeah. Because I've got nothing to configure. Zero Wi-Fi. Oh, my God. And so there's, you know, and in my case, for example, I'm I'm used static IPs, but there's the DHCP uh, client just sitting there running, you know, waiting to give me an automatic IP. It's like, well, I don't need that either. And so, you know, there are there's just so many services that end up running. And when I'm done trimming them down i've just got this short little list and and in this case of this xp that i set up i just was doing it yesterday i was running in 66 megs of ram and it boots instantly 
Wow. And it's just, you know, such a small footprint. And especially, for example, in a VM environment where you want to minimize the RAM impact of running a virtual machine, it really makes sense to pare down the the RAM footprint of your your virtual machines because it leaves more RAM for everybody else, you know, for the external system. So but so that's one point. The other is, you know, um, I've been big in the past on turning off services for security vulnerability reasons. So, for example, you know, unplug and pray, turns off the SSDP enumerator, um, shoot the messenger, turns off the messenger process, which most people don't need, um, uh, decombobulator, uh, shuts down the decom service. And so those were things that were done in a pre-service pack two of XP mode, specifically, they were things that really made sense when you were not behind a firewall. The world really did change with service pack two. And I wanted to make, I wanted to bring up that point that, that having these services back behind the firewall is far less dangerous than it used to be. So that's one point. On the other hand, the more things you've got running, the more opportunities there are for local exploits. I mean, mm-hmm. we always, we, you know, we hear about privilege um, elevation attacks where where you're running in a non-privileged account, but some malware gets in, and, and you're thinking, oh, well, I'm safer because I'm I'm a non-admin user, but there are privilege elevation attacks typically that, that use some sort of kernel exploit in order to get advanced privileges from a non-privileged account. And that's typically done by leveraging some services that are running, which a non-privileged account is not able to start. So they have to be there first, and then a non-privileged account is able to take them over. So again, it's another good reason, even if you're behind a firewall and a NAT router, why having less services, having fewer less services Fewer, less, less having fewer services. Yes, really does make sense. So <laughs> I think it's a great topic for an episode, and we're we're going to go there. Yeah. And as far as I know, I mean, uh, I think Black Viper's done a really good job. You've recommended him in the past. I mean, that's a great yep. place to go. Uh, I don't know if you can m- much improve on it, frankly. He's he's looks like done trial and error on every single service, one by one. Yep. Uh, Curtis Wyatt writes from La Cruces, New Mexico. Hello, Steve. Oh, this is a good one for me. I'm considering online bill paying. I've been using this for years. What do you think of this? Is it safe? Are there any drawbacks to giving my electric, gas, cell phone company bank information over to these guys? What do you think? Well, I think it's the typical trade-off between security and convenience. Now, in a non-online mode, you're mailing your check to these people. So... They've got your banking information. I mean, they've got your bank account number, and they know who you are. They're matching it up with your account and so forth. But only the particular person you're paying the bill to. Oh, exactly. Right. Exactly. But on so so, you're adding one additional uh, person who knows this information. That's this third party bill payer. Um. Okay. So. Um. And and so I guess my point is that anytime you are. You're aggregating information in a database, and and your data is there with a whole bunch of other people's. There's a single point of vulnerability, which is what you know has all the bad guys salivating. When we were talking earlier about this month's new 
metafile exploit. One of the things that I heard a lot about last week at RSA is the increased prevalence of targeted attacks where where specific executives or employees of of companies that the the bad guys want to get into, they'll send email that is about their organization or about their company or about their job because they they the the email that is focused on on that company is able to have a much greater penetration rate if it if it knows who it's going to instead of just you know random blanketed uh spam going out everywhere talking about you know somebody in Jakarta who who's got money that he needs to transfer into the US if you'll if you'll give them a hand and so so this kind of attack is the sort of thing which is now causing um, financial institutions a great headache. And and again, so so I, I, w- I would say relative to online bill paying, it's like, well, um, it's a tremendous convenience um, and I, you, you probably trade off a little bit of security for it, but – uh, you know, lots of people do it. What do you I, think? And you could make a case that you trade less security since you aren't using. Well, OK, actually, here's the dirty little secret of it. You may be using the mail after all, because a lot because a lot of companies don't accept electronic funds transfers from the bill pay service. In many cases, what the bill pay service does is print a check, put it in an envelope and mail it. So I guess in that case, you're not saving any security. I guess the ones that are using electronic funds transfer by not using the mail, you might be getting some security, right? I mean, mailing a check does expose you. Well, now, I, I assume that he was talking about setting up an account with the individual ah. organizations as opposed to well, a that central clearinghouse. Well, I use a central clearinghouse. I use Intuit's PayTrust and I have for years. Uh, it was originally pay my bills, PayTrust bought them, then Intuit bought PayTrust. So there's a there's a flaw right there. God knows how many different companies, at least three, have owned my information. Uh, there, there's also uh, there's also the potential risk. I've heard it said, this may be completely apocryphal, but that some some data entry is done by prisoners. And who knows if the bill pay services use that or not, but I suspect that some of them do. When Remember? they're not making license plates. Right. They're, they're paying so there, has some da- there is some data entry and quite a bit of data entry involved. I mean... Uh, no machine can look at a bill, figure out where it goes, and make sure the amounts are correct and everything. Some humans reviewing that, you trust that human. So, I mean, I think there are some real uh, security issues involved. Well, and, you know, my concern, anytime I, I, I hear someone talking about my bank account information, as I understand it, if if electronic funds transfer is used to suck money they out of the, my they account. Need the bank account, yeah. It's gone. Right. I mean, it, there's no indemnification against hmm. fraudulent transfers oh, out of a bank account. I don't. That can't be true. I don't know, because I know that I've talked to the FBI um, when we were um, I had some conversations with some of my local friends years and years ago when I was setting up my e-commerce system, just sort of asking them. So, you know, what do you you know, what's to watch for? And and they had some I mean, some real stories about people who innocently got involved with e-commerce, had their merchant accounts set up incorrectly so that there wasn't a limit on the amount that could be transferred, and uh-huh. they lost their entire balance, and there right. was no recourse. Much it was of that gone. Has, no, no, that, that is old information. They did True. change the laws on EFTs, um, and so there is a limit in indemnification. The law was changed a few years ago. Oh, good. However... <laughs> 
I'm not saying that that protects you. You should probably check with your bank and see what their policy is. But certainly on uh, th- this was an issue with using an ATM card instead of using a credit card. Uh, was originally when you use an ATM until a few years ago when you used an ATM card, you didn't have yes. the same protections. And a debit card, a right? Debit card. So as a result, uh, you could, in fact, if you lost your debit card information, really be, you know, drained. But that well, and there we, was and, a and law passed to change that. Now I would check with your bank about EFT and what kind of right indemnification you have. So you're right. Uh, now maybe it's it is then a little bit safer to you do what I do, which is use a single third party, uh, because they. Uh, handle the transaction so th- only they know my bank account information and then they pass along a, of course if you're sending somebody a check they've got the bank account information exactly that's part of that's kind of the weak link in all of this is that so many merchants don't accept you know the kind of it would be nice the whole idea of online bill pay would be this kind of everything's done electronically but it isn't in many cases your and, bank and a, your bank may right. offer this i you know intuit i trust intuit and certainly their privacy policy says it's very clear. The privacy, we do not sell or rent your personal information to anyone. We do not share your personal information with anyone outside of Intuit. We'll just sell the whole company to somebody else when it's no longer, <laughs> but that's the problem. It's no longer something that we right. want. It's been, it's, this is the third owner now of all of my personal information. However, yeah. having said that, I have been doing it for over a decade and have never had a problem. But, uh, you know, there, you're right. There's, I mean, what we cover on this show is theoretical problems, not we cover what could go wrong. Well, we're, yes, we're heavy on the technology. I should mention that um, while you were gone in Australia, Leo, I lost my credit card. Mm. That is, li- I lost access to it. I, I but, but that I mean, it escaped on the internet. I got a call from a robot. Really? Yes, it's the third time this has happened to me. I use it extensively all over the net, and I got a call from a robot that said, "Please hold for a security consultant." And uh, I got a gal on the phone who said. Um, were you buying anything in France last night when you were probably asleep? I said, uh, no. And she said, well, the first charge was for a dollar. And then there was a charge for 1500 and some dollars for some sort of sports boutique, whatever that is in France. And I said, no, it's not me. And then there was a, a third try. All three were caught and blocked by their automated security since I had no um, past of any kind of transactions like that. Um, and I said, okay, cancel the card. So we, you know, yeah. canceled that number and issued a new one. And happened, you know, happened to me too. I bought something from an Argentinian company and shortly thereafter, I got a $7,000 charge, but that's the good thing is the credit card companies call you. Yes, exactly. And they, I mean, if in anything fraudulent, they will take off your bill. And right. as it happens, I, I did go over my statement and there was you no, know, nothing got past them. Apparently that little $1 charge was their test, their test charge to mm. see whether the, the number and, and credit card information, which they had clearly received from someone was valid. Wow. And it, it was. So do check your statements. <laughs> but, you know, I uh, the banks use interesting... Actually, this would be a great subject uh, for a podcast at some point. They use business intelligence software to... I mean, remember, there's billions of transactions every day. Uh, how, do the, is it, how do they find out what's a weird transaction? They use software yep. to monitor your your kind of patterns... And anything out of the ordinary, the software flags. And this is a very effective software. It seems to catch most of this stuff. Well, and in fact, it, it's in one case, it's a little too effective. I've never been able to purchase gas with this credit card. <laughs> Sorry. 
Nope. Yeah, no, I, it shuts it down no every gas. time I use it to fill my tank. That's fine. Then you know, then I'll I'll go to I'll be at a restaurant. Odd. and They'll say, well, "I was really sorry, Steve, but this card is." I was like, "What?" Anyway, so I'll call them. It happened like three or four times in a row, and finally I said to the person, "Look, every time I buy gas with this card, you guys shut it down." They said, "Well, that's because, unfortunately." That's what the bad guys do. Right. They like they buy gas with a credit card because it it there is a there's no attendant present. They're next to their car. They can make a fast getaway right. if the right. car is declined. And so it's a simple way for them to with relatively safe with relative safety to check to see if, you know, if the card is good and they can, you know, get away with it. Oh, that's interesting. And so uh, consequently, I mean, you know, I have another car that doesn't isn't so so particular which i it's the card i deliberately pull out when i want to buy gas because i it stays alive afterwards whereas this, uh, this other card and, and it's these people who caught this stuff happening in france it's like, i'm glad for that i'm glad that yeah. you know i mean i'm willing to make the trade-off i won't buy gas if they'll shut down any you know fraudulent purchases because their software is so particular well it should be I, that's a little weird i haven't had that trouble although when i try to use an atm card in canada uh at one point it said no I called the bank, and all you do is you call the bank and you say, you know, I am in Canada. And they said, okay, good. We were just, you know, we were a little nervous. Yep. Uh, and and from then after, I never had trouble using my ATM card in Canada because they know, oh, he goes to Canada. Every, yeah, you had, every your, month. You, you, you had your Canada bit set. Right. <laughs> so I'm glad they do that. Uh, let's see. Where am I? John, listening from an undisclosed location, wishes he had a Wayback Machine. Well, who doesn't? Hi, Steve. I really, really like the Security Now podcast, so I ended up subscribing to Security Now. By the way, that's free. <laughs> I think I hate the word subscribe. That's what Apple uses in iTunes. And I think it confuses people because, first of all, you're in the iTunes store and then you press a button that says subscribe. It sounds like you're going to be charged something. Yeah. All our shows are free. If you want to donate, that's fine. That's completely optional. You go to twit.tv and you can Press the donation button. It certainly does help, especially now that we're starting to add this video. There's some spending a lot of money on things like lights. But he says, uh, I ended up subscribing for free, I add, to Security Now and have downloaded all the Security Now podcasts that iTunes has to offer. Well, that won't be many because we only uh, put 20 up at a time because we don't want Uh, that feed to get so long. Thus his need for the Wayback Machine. I would like to get the rest of the earlier episodes, so I have all of them, but I saw on your website information that stated, you may download and listen to selected episodes or subscribe to the ongoing series as an RSS podcast. I've already subscribed on iTunes. Does that mean I cannot download the episodes? See, this just drives me crazy because there really is this impression that in some way you're, you know, you're, you're limited. There's no limit. I wanted to ask, don't want to violate your policy. No, look, they're free. Get as many as you want. Uh, the easiest way to get them all is to go to twit.tv and uh, slash SN if you want to go directly. And that's the Security Now page, Twit. TWIT.TV slash SN. You know, I, th- I realize, Steve, that a lot of people don't even know that twit.tv exists, that there's a website. Really? Yeah. Oh, because they found it through iTunes. Right. And right, 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 right. And uh, so they don't see the donation stuff. Uh, people are constantly surprised. Oh, you accept donations? Yes. Oh, you can get all the files? Yes. You just go to twit.tv slash SN, and you can go one by one through every, every episode's on there. In fact, I'll tell you a little shortcut. If you go to twit.tv slash SN1, you'll get the first episode. SN2, you'll get the second episode. SN3, unless we, unless we make a mistake, sometimes we forget to do that. But if, and if, if we have, please let us know. But you, all 140 episodes are available there. Now, 
How do you download them all at once? There isn't, there isn't a way to subscribe. The reason is you don't want a podcast feed that has 140 shows in it. It would be too large. Uh, and it would cost us a lot of money because we pay the bandwidth for the downloads of the feed information. Good point. And people might just be downloading them when they really aren't going to listen to them well, all do. or don't really need they them. They do. I mean, that's the way iTunes and everything else works is it downloads the feed. Like every hour, it checks the feed. So if your feed size, our feed sizes are already pretty big because we include 20 episodes. That's about 50K. Uh, it would be a megabyte or more if you included all 140 episodes. That means every hour, everybody who subscribes would download a megabyte file. Do the math. I can't afford it. I had it. We used to do that. Oh, I, I was going to say, I, th- I think your math is wrong. But you're not talking about the content. You're talking Just about the, 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 RS, the RSS, de- the uh, XML definition file. Just the feed. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So we keep the feed to 20 episodes of any of all of our shows, the most recent 20 episodes. And that's 20 weeks. It goes back five months. But if you want to go back farther, then you have, the, I don't know of an easy way to do this. Somebody maybe want to write a script. They can. Um to download all the episodes. That's actually not a bad idea. I could probably put something like that out. It would just do it all. But not through iTunes, because iTunes is dumb. Dumb. Uh, I guess, you know what I could do is create... No, I don't want to do that, because people will subscribe to it, and then I'll get hit by it. I could, <laughs> I, uh, really, it's very expensive. Yeah. Uh, uh, bandwidth is not cheap. We, you know, The good news is, uh, of course, thank goodness, AOL pays for the bandwidth for the show... But they do not supply the feeds, and uh, even the feed itself can add up. So go to Security Now's page on twit.tv. I imagine, Steve, you have every episode at grc.com, too. I have them all there, grc.com slash security now. So you can go there as well. It doesn't matter. Same to me. Now that, Steve, you'd go through, you do the pod track link, right? Yep. Yeah. So that's the main thing is that we get counted. Actually, it doesn't even matter. For any episode that's older than a month, we don't get paid anyway. So forget that. We only we only get uh, you know we get paid per by our advertisers. Actually, Starro just pays us a flat fee. Audible pays for the number of downloads, and but they only count the first month's worth, which is kind of annoying, since many people like our good friend John like to listen to old episodes. You want me to read this next name? Hi, <laughs> Can Hi. That's very good. I didn't know how to pronounce Hi, it. Ikan Lindqvist. I don't know what the first name is. I, I don't know what that is. In Sweden, deeply gets the point of HTTPS security. I would just like to... Emph- By the way, we love it. We have many listeners in Sweden and Scandinavia in general. And we love that. In Australia, I found out we have tons of listeners in Australia. We have a ton... Yes. In fact, a bunch of them are here in our, in our questions, as a matter of fact. Yeah. yeah. That's what, one of the things that's most fun about podcasting or netcasting, as I like to call it, is its international scope. I would just like to emphasize something regarding banks, etc., that have their login form on a plain HTTP page in a statement that says, quote, your login information will be submitted securely, or something to that regard, and maybe even redirect people back to that insecure page if they attempt to switch that page to HTTPS manually. Ooh, that's annoying. It is actually not just a lack of fuzzy, warm feelings for the visitor, but a catastrophe waiting to happen. From a security perspective, even if the form is submitted over HTTPS, it really does show that their security part department doesn't understand HTTPS at all, which makes it worrisome that they have an online presence at all. <laughs> Wait a minute. Now, I think he's going a little far here. First of all, any fisher that makes a lookalike page will have no trouble emulating the login form. Of course not. They just copy and paste the, the source. 
How hard is it to write your login information will be submitted securely? What kind of security measure is that? What it should say is something like never ever enter your login information unless your browser shows the padlock and ideally, ideally verify the certificate change. Actually, he's got a good point. That's a very yeah, good point. Yeah, he really does. I mean, everybody does this. I'm not sure why. They have the insecure page that goes to a secure page. But he says encryption is only half the point of HTTPS. HTTPS is designed not only to encrypt data, but actually to show who you are communicating with so far as the trusted root authority knows, which is at least much more than the web surfer can know. So if you have the actual form on an HTTPS page, it not only gives a user a warm and fuzzy feeling, it's actually the only way for the user to be able to check who they're communicating with. The browser only can show that after establishing the connection, HTTPS connection. If your bank misuses security technology that badly, it may be worth switching banks, except they all do. Even Amazon does that. He's got a very yeah. good point, though. That it's, yeah, it's well, more than just security. It's it's certification. It's authentication. Yeah. Yes, you you are. I mean, as we've talked about, we have we have root authorities who who go to some length of trouble. And one of the things we're going to talk about next week, I attended a really interesting discussion last week at the RSA conference about these EV, the extended validation certificates. And I've got a much better sense today for. You know why it makes sense. Um, I was surprised that only five thousand of them have been purchased. Uh, there's only five thousand merchants who are using them. You know, I, GRC may become five thousand and one, hmm. although they are expensive and it annoys. That still annoys me. But I can understand, given what they do, um, that it, they are. You know, they're earning more money than they are with the regular certificates. That's for sure. But the point is that HTTPS does provide you with authentication of the identity of the far end. And, and you know, we've talked often about, you know, right-clicking on the page, looking under the page properties, view the certificate, and, and look at the, at the chain of trust back to, back to um, who trusted the, the, the site you're at. Why wouldn't and, you do that all the time? Is it because it's costly in some way? I'm sorry? Why wouldn't you? I mean, for instance, now, Amazon, I, I slander them a little bit. When, when I get to the login page, it is an HTTPS page. But as I'm shopping, so, yeah. it's an HTTP page. Why isn't it always HTTPS? Um, that's a very good point. I think it ought to be. Once upon a time, I mean, and we're, we're 15 years ago, where we had, you know, 8 megahertz PCs, it, you could argue that it was too expensive to, to establish the HTTPS, that is the SSL or, or TLS, um, which are the sort of the same thing, handshake. Because it, 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 there is that cryptographic setup process, which, which is a little expensive. But that's just gone away now. Servers are so powerful. Individual and user machines are so powerful. And we went from HTTPS. HTTP 1.0 to HTTP 1.1. One of the changes is the notion of persistent connections, where a browser, instead of uh, initiating lots of little short-lived connections, it will leave the connection up between the browser and the server as you move from page to page. So, so that 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 helps in many ways, one being that you're not needing to create individual secure connections. So that dramatically lowers the burden. I've 
I've been giving serious thought to just switching all of GRC over to secure connections. There just there just isn't a reason not to. I think once upon a time Google was not indexing secure pages, and that's long since changed. So they're just I don't see any reason not to leave it secure. Yeah, I mean when I, so I mean yeah. Let's do that, and, and, and so you have pers- you have persistent authentication, you know. and, yeah. and and you're absolutely snoop proof. The entire dialogue right. is snoop proof, you know. And and as it is now, I I enforce SSL connections on sensitive pages. You know, the security now entry page is that way. The you know the the perfect passwords, of course, is shielded that way, and as as is perfect paper passwords when it's displaying its stuff. So you know, it just makes sense. To, to leave it secure the entire time. I don't think there would be a downside to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, okay. Anyway, I really liked um, for you. I liked his observation yeah. that it was it's about authentication and banks that don't put you on a secure page for filling in the data don't allow you to verify their their identity now what's one of the things that we'll talk about next week that the ev certificate changes is it it's in the user interface is it you know you can see the name of the site certificate up in the browser's ui which over time i think people are going to really get i mean basically it it it's like having to right-click on the page, do properties, check the certificate, and see who the certificate owner is. It does all that work for you and just sticks it up there in the user interface. I think it's a great idea. I have to say, uh, I'm looking at my bank page, which, I, as I remember, it at, at least at one time, didn't do this. Bank of America does do it. You're HTTPS from the moment you're there. Good. So um, that's they good. got a they they got a clue. They got a clue. And I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to slander anybody. So Amazon does do that when you log in, but not while you're shopping. And that would be a nice, why not, why not just do it all the well, time? And a perfect example is Google mail. We've talked about this. You, 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 if you, if you go into HTTP colon slash slash mail dot Google dot com, you, it takes you through security in order to log in and then drops you back out to non-secure pages. If you go in as https colon slash slash mail dot google dot com, then it will you'll be secure and you'll stay secure. But they ought to just they ought to always since you had to go secure anyway to log in. It, it demonstrates that your that your client has the ability to establish an SSL connection. So why not just leave it up? I mean, yeah. why not take them into that mode? Right. In fact, I'm I'm noticing now Bank of America has now added. Uh, uh, oh, this is great. They've, this is something recently. They've added uh, this um, s- second layer, of, well, actually, I guess it's third layer authentication. They, you now have to use, or you can, you don't have to, have them send a code to a cell phone each time so that you can off, so that it's like having a dongle, a football. Yep. I like it's that. A, it's, it's another factor. I like that. Add that third factor. That's great. Don't mind the... Uh, Inconvenience. It's nice to know that I'm the only one who can get on this system. Moving along, Jim Busser of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, wants to remind us of one thing. Hey, Steve, really enjoy your only show. To supplement your answer as to whether you and by extension anyone should prefer to use TrueCrypt versus IronKey for protecting USB drives, a particular advantage of IronKey is its need, lack of need for administrative rights, where a user most uh, frequently access portable files from a PC over which they have no admin rights. 
as in many government and corporate institutions, and also the included secure surfing service from untrusted access points really should not be overlooked. Oh, that is, I didn't realize. So in order to use TrueCrypt, you have to be an admin, even to unlock. Yes, because it needs to install a, you either, you either need to be an admin or it needs, that system needs to have the TrueCrypt driver pre-installed by an admin. But it does this drive mapping where it creates a virtual drive and that requires kernel level access in order to, to instantiate a drive. So, I mean, and, and that's why I, th- I thought this was a, a really good point that I wanted to remind users of. I gave a presentation at our local North Orange County Computer Club um, two weeks ago. It was there. I loved it. It was their, their 32nd anniversary, but that's one zero 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 zero. So they said, well, in binary, that's a big round number. So, <laughs> so we need, we need cake <laughs> and we need Gibson to come and talk to us. <laughs> And so I gave a presentation on uh, on TrueCrypt and whole drive and, uh, encryption and, and about the things that we've been talking about. And one actually one of the ex-managers um, of the club came up and said, hey, Steve, I want to make sure, um, you know, I'm needing to often in my environments, as uh, she was in a school administrative environment, often needing to use my USB drive on machines that are locked down with non-admin rights. And so that says I cannot use true, I cannot use true crypt. I said, unfortunately that is the case. Excellent you, point. Excellent. Point. Yes. Yeah. And so iron key does not suffer from that limitation. And so I think that's a very good point. Yeah. Dan Menier, Menier in North Glen, Colorado needs some DNS clarification. Steve, you say you stated you run your own open DNS server. If the goal is to protect you from being a victim of DNS poisoning, well, how do you get propagated DNS information? Excuse my ignorance on this subject, but I do not see how this would protect you. Thanks. Um, well, I, if I said open DNS, then I misspoke. I just, just I think DNS. I just you run your own the, DNS server. Yes, yeah. and so and so what I run the the server I run is is called a resolver. Now that's that's the 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 technical name for what ISPs DNS servers are, meaning that the ISP clients, that is regular end users, they've got their their windows set up to ask their ISP DNS server to resolve DNS names. So the client, the, you know, the Windows or Mac or Linux machine, whatever, it sends the DNS query to the ISP, and then that server does what's called a recursive lookup because DNS is a hierarchy, so, you know, starting with the root and then .com and then, you know, .org, .net, .com, and, so, um, and other top-level domains going to the second level and third level and so forth. Anyway, what, so what I run is I run the same thing that the ISP runs. Uh, I have a little free BSD box, which is running Bind version 9 of Bind, which is sort of the industry standard DNS server. And so it does, it is my resolver, meaning that, that it has a list of all the root name servers. And so it goes so, right up to the top of the tree if it can't find it. Exactly. So, so basically, and, and it, you know, it, it, I gave it lots of memory and it caches. And so it is a full, um, a full resolving DNS server. So all of the machines in my network ask that machine for 
you know, to, to handle their DNS. And, and exactly as you say, Leo, it'll go to the root and then it'll find the comm servers and it'll and then it'll ask for this, you know, the, you know, what, like, for example, Amazon.com. And then if it needs to, www.amazon.com. And it will itself obtain the IP address. So my so the, point the is the root servers that have to be poisoned for this to be a problem. Well, what it's avoiding is it's avoiding trusting the ISP. Right, because right. an ISP being an ISP, you know, they're a big target. If if their server were compromised, all of their customers, for example, if someone managed to get a bad IP for Amazon or Microsoft or eBay or something, then you would think you were at Amazon and in your browser it would say www.amazon.com and they would just sort of not switch you into secure mode they just will you know unless you were really paying attention you might not notice that you were submitting your login information not in a, on a secure page mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it is it's easy to spoof browsers by poisoning DNS. And so, you know, I, I'm not that concerned about it. It's not the reason I'm running my own DNS. Actually, I'm running my own because my I, I don't have an ISP. You know, I'm buying T1 service from a bulk provider and, um, you know, so I just do my own DNS. Right. But, but that's the story. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, I, the only thing I would say is that if you do that, you, it's incumbent on you to make sure that you keep Bind patched and keep your BSD patched. Bind has had problems in the past. Bind has had a ton of problems right. in the past. Yes. So you you know it's you can't just turn it on and forget it if you're going to run your own DNS server. The other the other minor downside, and this doesn't seem to be any problem for me, but one of the advantages of an ISP's caching resolver is that. If if I you know turn my machines on in the morning, not that I ever turn them off, but um, you know I I I use a machine that doesn't already have Amazon.com the IP cached locally. It's almost certain that my ISP does because one of their other customers will have asked for it right. within the window of the DNS expiration. So that server immediately returns the IP that it already looked up for somebody else to me which is, you know, a a performance advantage. Whereas if I'm running my own resolver as I am, well, it's got to go and do that work because there's nobody here but me. And the the other thing I would would wonder is certainly uh, the folks who run the root servers would prefer that people don't do this, right? Because for that very reason, it, it could actually really increase the traffic on their servers. It would increase the load somewhat, although they've got long TTLs, uh, time to live on their records. So generally, you're, you've got a list of all the com, net, and org servers, and there's a ton of those. So you're really not going back to the root that often, except when, you're, when you need to update that master list of the, of well, the um, top-level domain. Well, how long is the TTL? How long is the time to live? When you say long, you mean a day or two, right? Or a oh, week? A, yeah, a day or two, yeah. So every, so at least every few days, you you have to download that entire list. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's... It's, I just, think that's like not, a, it's, it's just like a big RSS feed. Right, it's not insignificant. So uh, I would imagine... Th- uh, obviously, they don't prevent you from doing this. Anybody can set up a DNS server, but I would imagine they would probably prefer it if people stuck with uh, established ones rather than setting up their own. Yep. Eric Larson, listening from Denmark, wants guessing stopped. Well, good good for him. Hi, Steve. I just installed the new version of TrueCrypt and have started using the whole drive encryption feature with pre-boot authenticated. 
TrueCrypt recommends using a password of at least 20 characters. That could be a bit difficult to remember. In a recent show, you talked about Iron Key and how it only allows 10 tries, thereby preventing any brute force attacks. I like that, since even a four-character password is pretty secure in, in a situation like that. Wouldn't it make sense to perhaps, say, limit uh, to 50 tries with the pre-boot authentication in TrueCrypt? No one having tried 50 wrong passwords is going to get it right away. We're going to get it right anyway, and no brute force cracker will run more than a second before having used up the 50 tries. A second, a, t- a millisecond. I'm sure the people at TrueCrypt have thought about this. What do you think is the reason for not putting in a limit to the number of wrong guesses? Thanks from a guy who looks forward to every Thursday. Thank you, Eric. Well, the reason is they can't. Oh. And this is a, po- it's a point that David made that I thought was really worth revisiting, and that is that the reason Iron Key is able to enforce 10 tries is you have no access to the hardware counter uh, in the iron key. Right. But in a true crypt environment, it there's the whole PC. So you could take a snapshot of it. Right. You use up your 50 wrong passwords. It would have a counter somewhere that's inherently exposed unless somehow you could use the TPM, for example, on right. the chip and it, the TPM isn't really set up to be used as a secure counter. But the point is that any kind of counter is going to be on the hard drive or in RAM or in a combination of those or in the registry or somewhere where you fundamentally have access to it. So you get to 59 and just reset it to zero and try – I mean, sorry, 40, 49, reset it to zero and try another 49, reset it to zero, right. try another 49. There's just – there's no way unless you've got a secure counter that you could enforce – um, a password retry limit. It's you know it works in a in a client server mode because you as a client cannot reach into the server and reset the server's counter. But when it's when when you're sitting here in front of a machine you're trying to log into, you don't have a client server model. You're right there at the TrueCrypt server where you you could reset that counter, mm-hmm. and it's all open source. So whatever they're trying to do, everyone's going to be able to know what it is. <laughs> right. So they can't. If you can't even obfuscate the right. counter, right? There, it's absolutely there in the clear. There's an advantage to having uh, hardware and closed source. Right. I, I don't think I just heard that correctly. Did you, did you say that, <laughs> I Leo? I say it. But that's a very that's a good point. That's an uh, advantage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Scott Edwards in Newcastle, Australia, has a nice reminder. Hi, Stephen Leo. I was recently trying to explain encryption decryption to my workmate. I was telling him how difficult and practical and possible it was to crack strong encryption. To do this for the first time, I use the show notes to find the billion, 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 billion scenario. It's a number with 1,296 billion, 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 billion digits, just to make the point that strong encryption is strong. So I just thought I'd drop a line to let you know the show notes are great. It was very easy to find the info I needed to make the point. I look forward to the show every week. Keep up the good work. Happy SpinRite user. P.S. When you, wh- What are you up to when you come to Oz? Uh, thank you, Scott. I was uh, there for a two-week photo expedition. It was so much fun. Well, I wanted to. I just wanted to remind our listeners that thanks to Elaine's weekly transcriptions and the fact that we now have site-wide search available on every GRC page, if you go to www or actually that's optional grc.com/slash/security-now. In the upper right-hand corner is a search box. I imagine that Scott put billion, billion, billion 
into the search box, <laughs> sort of remembering that he'd heard something right. like that. And he pressed the button and bang, he was immediately taken to the episode at which he could he could then listen to or, you know, reread in order to get exactly what that was. Um, and then, of course, you, uh, after it finds the right episode, you can easily use your the, the, the find in your browser to find the billion, billion, billion where it exists in the transcript. So um, that's there for everybody, for every one of the 139 previous episodes and shortly for this number 140. It's a really nice feature. And we th- thank you for uh, actually uh, Steve pays for that out of his own pocket. So that's nice of you to do that. Um, and if you want to see what I was up to in, in, in Australia, and I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't get to uh, anywhere besides the state of Tasmania because I was there as the guest of Mikkel Oland, and uh, he's writing his new Lightroom Adventure book. Uh, 20 photographers and I, the amateur, went down there to take pictures of Tasmania for two weeks, and uh, that they will be part of a book called the Adobe Lightroom Adventure 2, uh, which should be out in a few months. I don't know if I'll have a picture in the book. I mean, and there were so many really good photographers. But you can see my pictures. You can, in fact, see the whole, sto- whole story on my uh, website, leoville.com. If you go to the blog, um, I put up about, every other day I would put up a post with lots of pictures in it. And then you can see uh, what I consider to be my best pictures uh, in the photos section of the blog. If you go to Smug Mug, um, you can see the Tasman- Lightroom Adventure Tasmania folder. Flickr also has some pictures, although they're more on Smug Mug. I think... I only put what I consider to be the best pictures on Flickr. <laughs> Smugmug has everything. <laughs> Not everything. I took 3,600 pictures. It only has about 80 of them. 80 of the most best pictures. Wow. It was fun. Oh, it was a great time. And what a great place. And, and I apologize to Scott and everyone in Australia I did, that I didn't get uh, to meet. Um. But we just, that was it. It was Tasmania. Two weeks in Tasmania, which was not nearly enough. But uh, I'll go. I'll be back. Australia's a great place. Boy, it's wonderful. Have you ever been down there, uh, Steve? Never have yet. No. Great country. Really, the people are so friendly. Uh, and it's uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. At least the part I saw was. James Manager, also in Australia from Melbourne, makes a very good point about wandering thumb drives. Dun, dun, dun. Hi, Steve. Leaving your thumb drive on your keychain with a mechanic we were talking about this, the two, the, the two part keychain, because <laughs> right. you have a thumb drive on your keychain and you always have to take it off. Might yep. not allow them, uh, might not allow them to read your private files directly, given that they're protected with TrueCrypt and a long crypto strength password. But they could do even worse. They could put malware on the thumb drive. Huh? Did you ever think of that? Huh? Huh? Yeah. The malware could automatically infect the computer you subsequently plug the thumb drive into. Perhaps your computers are mostly safe from this if you deliberately switched off auto run, although I'm not sure if that's sufficient. I think for you three, it might even require more. I think you mentioned a small TrueCrypt EXE that could go on the thumb drive so you could access your data from a computer where TrueCrypt was not installed. What happens if the mechanic has replaced this EXE, for instance, on the thumb drive with malware of the same name? Whenever you deliberately run this EXE, you'll infect your computer. Malware might even behave like the real TrueCrypt EXE, prompting you for your password. At that point, the malware can read your protected data and probably find a way to send it to the attacker. Problem is, you protected the confidentiality of your data, but not the integrity of the disk. And he's right. I mean, I'm, you know, the more we look at TrueCrypt versus IronKey, the more I wish IronKey was small and cute and, <laughs> like, could innocuously sit on my keychain the way this gorgeous little Kingston 
MicroDrive does. This little four gig Kingston that I use is just, I mean, it's just wonderful to have it there. Um, and unfortunately, the iron key is, you know, it's crush proof and filled with epoxy and industrial strength and metal and all that. But I just can't have it on my keychain. Um, right. But I'll tell you, I mean, once again, um, there's an advantage of iron key is that it is, you know, hardware encryption. It is it, nothing is exposed. There's no drive there until you log in and then it does the the deciphering whereas exactly as james says here you know even my little thumb drive it's got that true crypt exe has to be accessible because um without that you know it, it, it's that that mounts the device driver that that prompts me for my password and so forth so you know there there really is that vulnerability i mean he's exactly right i'm gonna have to come up with some solution to that problem hmm <sighs> yeah, I think I could probably um, I think I could probably password protect the true, the true crypt exe and and that might work, although it wouldn't you couldn't show that it's absolutely. Well, maybe I'm MD5 hash. Think, think about that. Do yeah, a hash I mean, on it. You could probably. Yeah, but then you're not it. going to. I mean, it needs to be something that you have to do every time. If you if you, if I were to password encrypt it so it's a self-extracting exe then then i would instantly detect if it were replaced there'd be no way to well but then again you know by the time you run something to find out that it's not what you expect it is the damage is done <laughs> too late it's been run yeah there's no good solution there's, to that. there's always a risk i think uh when you uh give somebody the hardware when they have access to the hardware that's risky I, that's why the iron key goes to such great lengths with the epoxy and so forth. And I have to say, again, I, David, I think, you know, and the Iron Key folks, they solved that problem. I mean, I was I was sort of thinking, oh, boy, this is overkill. But, you know, the more I think about it, it's like this is what you have to do if you want to have a secure thumb drive that you can hand to someone and say, here, I don't care what you do with this. Um, you know, you can't get me. Yeah. We're going to uh, come back in just a second with our last question, our shocking but true jolt of the week oh boy but before we do that <laughs> it's the jolt of the week before we do that i do want to mention our good friends at you know where astaro and i met them yes last you did week. yeah oh, I'll, tell RSA. You, I'll, I'll tell you all about that oh, next week. that's great um that's right i forgot in fact they made some announcements i think at rsa they have a new uh, web-based um security gateway that's kind of yep. cool um, if you go to astaro.com, you can find out all about that and the uh, the Astaro Security Gateway we always talk about all the time. This is really, this is really the power tool. The Astaro Security Gateway is immediate protection for your network. You get web access controls, including peer-to-peer and instant messaging. You control email traffic. It's got three antiviruses, two for email, one for uh, web access. Of course, you've got, you know, your traditional security applications, intrusion detection, firewalls, very smart, you know, very top of the line firewall. These are hardware appliances, and that's what's so great about them. But they also now have the web gateway. I, t- I tell you, these guys really know what they're doing. You find out more by going to astaro.com, uh, or if you want to, you know, try one out in your business, they'll, they're glad to send you a free demo unit. You can talk to their engineers, find out all the things that Astaro can do. 
This is especially a good deal if you have a Cisco Pix that's now come to the end of life and you want to replace it, you get a special discount from Astaro. Call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, 877-427-8276. Now have, uh, they have a VPN via SSL, which makes it very easy for your users. Uh, email encryption and decryption on the gateway so your users don't even know what's going on. They're signing and everything, and it's all automatic. It just goes on and on. This is so great. Phishing, anti-phishing uh, protection. I, I really am impressed by this. And I'm, I'm curious. I'd really be interested to hear what you have to say about, uh, about them. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. And it, by the way, if you are a home user, you can get a free license, which includes everything, including the Astaro up-to-date. They used to charge uh, 79 euros for that. That's all free now. A-S-T-A-R-O.com slash security now to find out more about that. Astaro, we thank them for their support and for such a great product. You saw them in uh, at RSA, huh? Did they were they yeah. nice to you? Very nice, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They like they're you. very, they're very happy. I'll, I'm going to wait till next week before I tell you what. All I, right, what I, good. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait. That we'll do a whole episode on RSA. Yep. Uh, next week. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, our shocking but true. Jolt of the week, anonymous in nearby in Irvine. Now he actually had his name in his message to me in his email, and I thought, no, no, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna use his name for this one. Really? L- listen to what he says, Steve. Man, you have no idea how right on you are about any digital resource left in, on, or around your car when you leave it for service. I have provided IT support for a dealership group local to you in Irvine. VW and Honda, you probably know them. You're probably aware that almost all auto technicians have PCs and laptops in their service bays. Well, when a vehicle is brought to their service bay, the first thing they do is inspect the vehicle for CDs and iPods to rip and import music. (laughs) After that, any USB drive, portable hard drive, laptop is tapped into to see if there are any files that might be useful. Probably looking for porn. Then the items are placed back in the vehicle, and the owner never knows. Their music, personal files, and applications have been copied. Oh, my goodness. Yep. The service technicians I've observed have amassed a huge library of music and applications that never seem to stop growing. They supplied their own network-attached storage to share their booty without tough... They put it in their own NAS server. (laughs) This is like uh, organized crime. Without tapping into company IT resources... Be aware, anything you leave in your car can and will be accessed by tinkering fingers. Holy cow, Steve. Isn't that, isn't that horrifying? Holy cow. I mean, well, you know, I they, was always told not to leave your keychain anywhere. You know, to have a valet key and keep yep. stuff in the trunk and then take your keys because, of course, they could copy the keys. They've got your registration. They know where you live. I mean, that they're, they're, I mean I, I've always worried about that, but who knew they were doing this? Yeah, I mean, it's it, as you say, it's almost like it's organized. It's organized it's like they've, crime. They've got their network attached storage in order to have storage space. And anything you leave behind, they well, you can imagine just, you know, them sitting there ripping your CD collection because, you know, lots of people have a bunch of CDs in their car. So they empty out your CD changer, stick one disc in after the other to suck all your music out, and then put it all back. And if, if people have ever wondered if, wait a minute, I thought that was disc number four. How, how did it become number six? Well, now we know how the, the CDs move around magically. Wow. They weren't put back in the same place. Wow. That's really quite uh, uh, amazing. <laughs> Holy cannoli. 
Holy camoly. That is the shocking uh, admission, uh, mission of the week. And I see why you took his name out now. And yeah. I bet you're not taking, I bet you're better be more careful when you, curse people always leave CDs in their car. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't leave a laptop in my car. That seems kind of kooky. But now I won't leave my iron key in there either. All right. Well, the, iron, the iron key is safe. Iron key would you, be just safe. Want to, you just want to make sure you get it back. Somebody, uh, we had a, a couple of impromptu informal meetings. Although I guess actually the iron key, if they guessed wrong 10 times, it would shut down. They could break so your iron key. You're, you're right. You don't want to leave it in there. Don't even. Because yeah. they, they'd absolutely plug it in and uh, and do let's, some guessing. Oh, let's try some passwords. <laughs> Jeez Louise. There yeah. were a number of people at the, uh, we, uh, you know, we had these meetups in Australia. And a guy come. It was so cute. I think it was Ivar's. Came up and said, "Look at this." And he has his iron key on his keychain. Oh, neat! Yeah. yeah. And actually, I saw the iron key guys also, and and their reaction was, they said, "Boy, this podcast has legs." <laughs> Tell them to buy I, some ads. I guess wherever they were going, they were saying, "Hey, yeah, I heard iron Steve key, man. Iron key, right on." He also had a uh, PayPal football on his keychain. Yep. So this guy, this guy is a serious. I think it was Ivar's. It was a serious listener. If it's not Ivar's, I apologize to whoever it was. Hey, uh, we're at it. We're done. We're not out of time because we could go on and on, but we are done with episode one forty. Yeah, you're proud now. You've passed to it, baby. You're happy now. Yeah, happy now. So next week we're going to cover the RSA conference and set, which happened in San Francisco. It is the security conference of the year. It's the big one. And code wants to be wrong, <laughs> which should be the title of this podcast. <laughs> Leo wants to be wrong, too. Uh, Steve, thanks so much. Remember, go to GRC.com, folks. That's the place to get your 16 kilobit versions of this the, uh, for the data in challenge, the download challenged. Uh, and I'll rem- I will remind people that all the questions they heard uh, Leo Reed just now, they came to me via grc.com slash feedback. Good point. So that's where you go, grc.com slash feedback. There's a web form there where I get no spam. And uh, so submit your question and it'll get to me. Yes. Yes. And uh, you can also search for any previous episode at that spot and find many great programs too to help you, including the perfect passwords generator grc.com slash passwords perfect paper passwords wismo shoot the messenger decombobulator and the famous the world famous shields up it's all there grc and did i forget i did spin right my favorite the one and only <laughs> the best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility grc.com steve we'll talk again next week security now